Welcome to another episode of Creator Talks. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. On this episode, I have two guests, writer Steve Orlando. You know his work from DC's Supergirl, Justice League of America, Midnighter, and the Batman Shadow miniseries. Also joining me is artist Gary Brown, along with past guest Chris Mooneyham, or fellow classmates at the Joe Cooper School of Cartoon and Graphic Art. Gary is known for such work as The Massive, Black Road, through Dark Horse Comics, Iron Patriot through Marvel Comics, Catwoman at DC Comics, and Baby Teeth and the Revisionist through Aftershock Comics. This episode, we're going to talk about Crude, their creator and series being published through Skybound Image Comics. And we're going to learn how this is a true collaboration between Steve and Gary. But first, I'm going to talk to Steve about breaking into comic books, who were his mentors, some of his early work that he did outside of comic books for a liquor store distributor, work that Gary did at a carpet manufacturer, plus a whole lot more and my fun questions I ask all my guests. Today, as I record this opening to the episode, we are in the beginning of spring, and I am cleaning up snow from our fourth nor'easter to hit Delaware. And it's funny that when I recorded this episode with Steve and Gary, we had a nor'easter that took out power all day, And I finally got the power back just in time for this interview. So hopefully in my part of the world, spring is here at last. So let's begin this great and insightful conversation with Steve Orlando and Gary Brown. Here now on Creator Talks. Steve, welcome to Creator Talks. Hey, what's going on, man? And welcome, Gary. Hey, how are you? How you both doing? It's 80 degrees out, and I live in upstate New York, so I'm doing quite well. That's the kind of day we're having today here down in Delaware. It's like around 70. It's ridiculous. I had the air conditioning on in the car today. I'm in California, and it's 57. No, wait a minute. <laughs> Things are backwards. Today's new comic book day as we're having this conversation, and Black Panther came out last week. So I go into my comic shop, pick up all my new books, and I see above the bins a whole line of jungle action Black Panther. And I have several of them, and I see several I have missing. I'm like, oh, I have to get these two. So we're talking big bill this week. <laughs> so I text my wife, and I know she has to go out. I said, um, can you take a picture of the Black Panthers I have sitting on the side table on the right-hand side so I know what I have and I don't make the mistake of buying things twice? And she said, I can, but the Internet's out right now. I'm like, what? In the comic shop, then turns to me and says, uh, we don't have any internet right now. Oh, how long is that going to last? 8.45 tonight. And I'm like, wait, I got to call Steve and Gary at 6. <laughs> so thank God. Everything's fine. It all came back much faster than Verizon said it would. So Steve, let's talk about first contacts with comics. Your first comics, your first comic book actually was West Coast Avengers 15, at least that you recall. I think it was 16 though. I think it was 16 was A Tale of Two Kitties. Oh. Uh very progressive title from the 1980s. And it featured Hellcat and Tigra fighting over the Hellcat costume. Uh, and then they team up to beat Tiger Shark by clawing at his like useless dorsal fin that he has. So uh, clearly that had a big impact on me because I remember the plot to the T. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of West Coast Avengers. For whatever reason, growing up in the late 80s in Syracuse, a lot of people wanted to give that shit away for 10 cents. I don't really know. Really? But a lot of what I read early was West Coast Avengers. That's why I like U.S. Agent more than Captain America. I'm the only person. Yeah, I have a bunch of those too, especially the Burn Run. I enjoyed those a lot. 
Oh yeah, man. Like I love that team to this day. Like I love, uh, I love Mockingbird and I love Silver Centurion. Iron Man is still my favorite Iron Man armor. Can't say the same for like red jumpsuit. Uh, Hank Pym. Can't all be winners. Do you still like to go out and hunt for comics, either at you know, flea markets or bookstores, whatever? Like weird stuff from the, uh, I would say the golden age. Like I love when just like pure sci-fi was bigger and things like that. You know, Tales of the Unexpected, Journey into Mystery, all those things like old challengers of the unknown. Like, that's kind of where I'm at now. Uh, but yeah, I always like finding weird stuff. And also like that, that silver age era of Batman where like he could be turned into a giant cake and be left in a room with a hungry child or something. And like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. is that real? Is it real? Is that, was there one like that? You'll never know. <laughs> 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 Gary, what was your first comic that you remember that made a lasting impression on you? Well, I didn't, I grew up in a, a small town in Scotland, so we didn't have a comic store. Uh, I would get like the 2000 AD bi-weekly stuff. It's like the first comics I remember reading. But the first like major US comic I got was uh, Nightfall because my mom was a member of a book club. We had to order five books and they had a comic section. So I got like two of the Nightfall books, the trades. And I didn't, I thought that's how it ended. I thought it ended with Azrael being Batman forever because I never read the third trade until uh, I was like, till like two years ago. So. Well, yeah, Batman ended after that book, actually. It hasn't been out in 25 years. <laughs> Gary, where did you get your books? Well, I'd go to Edinburgh sometimes, and there's like they have like a Forbidden Planet there. Um, so I'd go there with my buddy on the weekends and try and get some stuff. But I didn't really know what I was looking at because they're just a, a bunch of trades on a wall. I didn't really know much of the characters or anything. So I think I saw what was it? Judge Dredd versus Batman. What was that? Judgment on Gotham. That was one of the early ones I got as well because I knew Judge Dredd and I knew Batman. So. Let's talk a bit about your education, both of you. Steve, um, I found this fascinating. So you went to Hamilton College and you earned a degree in Russian language. Now, first, why Russian? That's interesting. That's a tougher language to learn than the other ones. Most of us would say, oh, I'll take Spanish. It'd be helpful someday, but Russian, why that? Something tells me Russian is going to be very useful the next couple of years. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, uh, no, my family's Russian. My grandmother uh, at that time was alive and quite old. She lived to 101. She reached a point as I was going into college where she had no one to speak her native language anymore because you're 99 years old. Like, they've all died of natural causes uh, and you're still around. So, like, I started taking the language so I could sort of reconnect with that since it's part of my heritage and, and also give her someone to speak Russian to. So, that, so that's how it all began. And that's what sent me to Russia to study. Uh, unfortunately, she passed away while I was in Russia. But that was the start of it all, you know. And also, they just have such a sort of intense relationship even today with pop culture and folklore and where those things meet. Uh, I've always found the, the culture itself fascinating, if not problematic. But, you know, those two things aren't mutually exclusive. And when you first started college, did you go in for a creative writing degree? And when you graduated, they wouldn't give you that? Is that did I understand that correctly? Yeah, that's true. So what happened is uh, I did have a double concentration with creative writing, but I did a program that was sort of uh, both prestigious and divisive at the school called Senior Fellowship. It was like a six-month application process to get in. They awarded very few of them, but if but I did one. And what that means is that for my senior year of school, rather than having classwork, my entire year was independent study. And, you know, the, the culmination of which was 
something, you know, much longer than a normal thesis. Like everyone in my school had to do a final project, which is kind of rare. Like sometimes not every concentration at other schools needs to do one. But even if you were a math major, you had to do like a 30 to 40 page final project. But for a senior fellow, you had to do the equivalent of more like 100 to 200 pages of work. So it's, it's basically like writing a book. And I wrote and illustrated a, a graphic novel myself, uh, you know, so I could uh, learn every part of the production process. So I wrote it, I drew it, I lettered it, I, I, I fitted for publication and things like that. Uh, but at the end of it, uh, you know, my advisor had never actually checked with the head of the English department to see if they considered graphic novels literature. And they didn't. Uh, and because I didn't, quote, write anything, uh, I, I did not get a creative writing degree. Um, clearly, that's worked out fine. That doesn't seem fair. It wasn't your fault. No, that's uh, you know that's true. But th that's the way things go sometimes. When your when when your advisor is an aging, wind obsessed classics professor, sometimes things slip through the cracks. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but you know it's good because honestly, like more than probably oh, probably more than at least some writers, uh, I, I know what artists on books I work with are going through on a day to day basis. And maybe not Gary, because Gary can draw, like, presumably with more appendages than he has at one time. But, you know, I, I, I've drawn in a 100-page book, so I know exactly what the grind is like. In theory, that I should be more sympathetic then. But, uh, you know, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe that's not my question to answer as we get into that topic, you know. Oh, and we will. Uh, Gary, did you ever study any foreign languages, ever have the desire to? I studied English for a couple of years. So. <laughs> In school, we had to pick either French or German, so I took German. But I, actually, I would I wanted to learn Russian when I was in high school, so that's funny. But they never had a Russian class, so I, I spoke German for a while. Oh, good for you! I had to pick one too. I picked French, which was you know, I thought this will be useful, and you know, I took like four years in high school, and then when I went to college, I just had to take a semester. So I'm like, okay, I'm gonna chicken out and take second year French, and so that way I can get through it. <laughs> I wasn't about to do conversation and writing. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> I just want to check the box and move on. <laughs> <laughs> so, Steve, uh, about work, it wasn't until the last couple of years or so when you went exclusive that you didn't need to have a day job. Before that, you were working at a wine store and you were a buyer of spirits? Uh, well, yeah. I um, wanted something that I didn't have to take home. And as a bonus, when you know about wine and, and spirits, it's a lot of times like telling people that you're a sorcerer in comics because, you know, people don't get out much and... And so it's, it was beneficial for having cultural cachet in the industry, but I also just really like it, you know, like I, I like the craftsmanship and the production. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, I went to a store that had a very strong personality running the wine section, but he didn't really have a palate for the higher proofs uh, that you see in spirits. So that's sort of the niche I fell into. Uh, and I actually still do a little work just to keep myself sane and honest outside of comics, uh, working for a craft spirits import company right now. But mostly just designing new products and helping bring some sort of new things and marketing plans uh, out to our customers. But just something that is nice, you know, after you spent the whole day in comics to be able to step outside of yourself for a minute and do something else. I don't want to lose a love of either thing. And, you know, if you do only one thing, I, I, my, my worry is that eventually I'll be like that dude that's been managing a Baskin Robbins for 20 years. And like the last thing he wants is a damn Sunday at the end of the day. And I don't want that to be comics. So uh, I got to keep it fresh. 
I understand. When you go to a liquor store for yourself to look for spirits, you must look at it very differently than before you were in the business. You know, that you have all this knowledge now. Like when I go, it's like, oh, that's a cool label. That's not a good criteria because sometimes it doesn't work out. Do you have a certain criteria when you go to pick um, whiskey or gin? I like to try new things. But I guess the only criteria I have is like I like things that are un unmeddled with. When it comes to darker spirits like scotch or any type of whiskey, tequila, anything you think of as brown. I mean, my current job, PM Spirits started as a cognac company, so I deal with a lot of that too. But the fact is that any of those things, it's completely legal for people to put all sorts of chemical additives, colorings and other things in it, sweeteners and, and anything that is not against the law, but like is not pure and is not, you know, is not natural or traditional. I shouldn't say natural. I'm not as worried about natural as I am traditional. And so what I do look for is something that doesn't have like artificial coloring and that doesn't have uh, grain alcohol added, like a lot of times you'll see on tequila bottles. Like tequila should be 100% from agave, which is the type of cactus relative that tequila is made from. But if you look on something like Jose Cuervo, all it says is made with blue agave, not 100% puro de agave. And the difference there is that like in many cases, not to blow up Jose's spot, not that they need me, but like Jose Cuervo is basically just tequila flavored vodka. Like the majority of it, of what's in there when it comes to alcohol is grain alcohol. So I... I uh, just look for things that are, are just actual versions of what they are. Like, I don't really care about the color of something because oftentimes when you see a scotch, uh, depending on how big the brand is, like, yeah, maybe it does look really exciting and dark and it's like cherry red and things like that, but that's because they put caramel coloring in it. Uh, so I guess authenticity versus like a specific type of flavor or something is what I'm interested in because honestly, like much like wine, when you have something that is made by a real person, and there's maybe only 100 bottles at a time. Uh, authenticity should be what you're looking for. Uh, re regularity is something you maybe won't find because just like different vintages of wine, every batch can taste different. And so, yes, maybe like you don't have the reliability of a bigger brand when you look in uh, spirits and producer-based products, but what you do have is a true product made by someone with sometimes thousands of years. If you're talking about like Georgian wine, for example, like literally thousands of years of tradition behind that. And so that's what's more important to me. Like spirits and wine should take you, should be a microcosm of the place they come from. Uh, I mean, if you want to talk about scotch, like, you know, the ingredients of scotch are relatively uniform. It's water and barley. Uh, and yet look at the vastly different types of flavors you can have in it. And that comes from the soil. That comes from where the grain grows. And it comes from the treatment uh, and, and roasting of, of the barley uh, which itself is is usually smoked with peat bogs that are also, again, from the actual local area. So uh, you're getting a vision, basically, of, uh, of these regions when you when you drink a real product, and, and that's kind of what interests me. Well put. Very good advice, too, is to keep it as natural and pure as you can. And I think that anybody that bothers to take that extra step and do that will really appreciate the difference once they've tried it that way. Gary, uh, before comics, what was the most interesting job that you had? I never had an interesting job. I had a lot of crap jobs. Like I worked in a, I tell this story all the time. I worked in a carpet factory, but not making carpet. I made, I punched the rivets into the little booklet that holds the carpet samples. Yes. Yeah. So I did that manually uh, for like a month, I think. And then they fired me because I wasn't happy. Well, how could you be? It's mind numbing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I didn't uh, well, I wasn't complaining. The job was terrible. But uh, so I did that. I worked in like a the equivalent of a Seven Eleven. I worked in a green grocers place, just stuff like that. Little 
jobs in the local town, essentially. Yeah, I've had some odd jobs. I mean, not professional jobs, but while I was in college, I had summer jobs. And I had some really bizarre ones while in college. Like the first one was working in a plumbing parts factory. One of the best parts of the job was just being in this shutdown section of the factory and just washing parts by myself. It was great. The next year I was a caddy and I know nothing about golf. So I learned and I wasn't crazy about it, but it was great exercise. And then the final year, I remember I had a job where I was preparing brain tissue for being looked at under the microscope, staining it. And because uh, you know, I was studying psychology, so I found something that was more, I guess, in my field. That was another great job. It was also very solitary, just working away with the brain slices. And, uh, you know, that's different. <laughs> wow. So let's talk a bit about comics before we get too crude. Now, Steve, you broke in, or you were trying to break in at a very young age, the same age Jim Shooter broke in doing uh, Legion for DC. It took you, you said, about 17 years or so until you felt like you were finally running with the comic creators. Why is that? Why didn't you feel you were in until that many years had passed? Uh, I mean, because I wasn't. Like, it's not really the... <laughs> Why did it take 17 years? Because I hadn't actually been paid for professional work. By some tokens, 2012, but one eight-page story at my rate is not enough money for my rent in a month, so it's certainly not something you can live on. So, you know, in to me is when you're actively publishing and at least making some income from your work. Like, I didn't really have this as my main job until I got the regular gig on Midnighter. But it took that long for me to get continuously get better and get critique and, and create something that was publishable, to be honest. So that's why I say that. You know, the first time I had something where I was billed first, I did some short stories and things. I was in Outlaw Territory, which was nominated for an Eisner in like 2008. And at that point, yeah, I was like, I'm in, everyone will care. And then, you know, no offers came in and no one cared that I had 16 pages in an anthology. So what I mean is, yeah, like, when you turn the corner from being aspirational to professional, to me, that's when you're in. And everybody has a different answer. But certainly when I when, when DC Comics and Comics in General started paying my rent uh, and I didn't have to sell scotch anymore, to me, that's when you're in. Well, one of the things that you learned along the way is you tried initially to do work for free for smaller publishers, but that just didn't really work out. So you took a different approach and tried to learn as much as you could and get feedback, which is great. You know, put down that ego and just look for honest, unabridged criticism, unfiltered. Just tell me what I need to do and do better. And you said you got some great advice from uh, Joe Kelly and Steve Siegel. Do you remember any advice that they gave you, anything that really stuck with you over the years? Kelly and Siegel are my main mentors and especially Siegel. I mean, yeah, there's myriad advice, but I love Steve, but he is like one of the most utilitarian and unflinching people I've ever met when it comes to critique. You're like a 13 year old and there's no like, it's not like showing your work to your mom where she's talking about, you know, how great something is. Like he didn't waste time on that. He would immediately go into the things that are unpublishable because uh, those are the things that need to get better. So like specifically, it's not like he has catchphrases. It's not like working, learning from Lenin or something like that. But uh, he always gave critique that was very honest, almost brutally so. And that aesthetic and that tone of discourse I found very helpful because, you know, comics and entertainment in general, the people you were pitching to uh, are not there to make you feel good and are obligated to worry about your feelings. And, and so being prepared for the fact that, yeah, you can spend a year on a pitch and bring it to San Diego and someone can dismiss it in five seconds. Uh, that sucks, but that's also the way it goes. All you have is that cell. So that was, that tone of discourse was important from him. You know, he has just always been very realistic about what the industry is and what the expectations could be. I guess one 
piece of advice he did give me early on is like shocker of shockers writing does not take as long as art so you know you want to find a way to make your artist life livable obviously if you're like an image and you're not getting an advance you maybe give them a right out of pocket maybe you're investing on printing maybe you're investing in the book in other ways and the one thing that steve did regularly say is you only spend as much as you can afford to lose uh because yeah nothing is guaranteed in comics and it's a measured risk when you're publishing a book. And that's also been very valuable to know. Like, it is perhaps not prudent to spend your life savings making one book if you can't afford to lose your life savings, because that book might not be the one. I mean, you're talking to a guy who had 70 to 100 books that weren't the one. You know, it's good to know. It's good that perspective uh, has been useful to me. Man, well, since I've known him, which is almost 20 years. Take risk, but... Be careful how much you take, what you can comfortably do without going broke. Risk is inherent in this industry. And by the way, like it's not just as a writer, they're just different risks. I don't think it's fair to ask an artist to work for free, certainly, because they're risking their time. You know, there's a low risk when it comes to time investment as a writer. I'd prefer to take like one or two weeks to write a book, but if I had to, I could write a book in a day. But no one can draw a book in a day. And especially if you have a day job and you aren't in as an artist, you know, asking that person to at least not take some sort of compensation is basically asking them to marry you because they're either going to be at their job or they're going to be spending the other eight to 10 hours that they're, in theory, finding some sleep in between as well, drawing that book. So it's a, it can be a financial risk as a writer in order to allow and free up an artist to take that risk of their time and their emotional state. Uh, but everybody takes a risk. And it's just about understanding that and measuring that uh, about, yeah, again, what you can afford to not get back. And maybe it works out and maybe you do get everything back and maybe a project is hugely successful. But maybe you have to do that five, 10 or 50 times before one is, you know, you never really do know. And so it's good to have perspective and realism. Like I say, like I, I say things like unromantic and utilitarian. But I find that extremely valuable. Any pro could have brushed me off at 12 and been like, yeah, kid, make your book. And you're going to be the next Jim Shooter and the next Paul Levitz. And you'll walk into D.C. and you'll be working there until you're 70. In the case of Paul Levitz, that's a great fantasy, but it's not really useful. And so I think that, again, uh, a measured and realistic view is extremely vital to up and coming people. Because then when things do work out, it's a surprise and you're prepared for when they don't versus thinking that this is going to be almost famous and you're writing for Rolling Stone at 15 because uh, that's a movie. And yes, it's based off a true story, but that story doesn't happen too often. Now, Gary, what's your experience? You went to Joe Kubert's School of Art, of cartooning and graphic art. Uh, you went uh, with fellow classmate Chris Mooneyham. I heard you guys just hit it off right away. You guys were like tight right away. No problem. <laughs> I spoke to him the other week, so that's... <laughs> <laughs> you tell the story. Yeah, we hated each other um, for like, maybe it was like six months or something. But it's because we were so similar with stuff. And then now we're like, he's one of my closest friends. Known him for like 10 years now or something. So it all worked out. <laughs> and you got a lot of feedback and a lot of work at the Cooper School. That was a tough job. Did Joe give you any direct feedback that you remember? I think it was like, don't be scared of down shots. I remember him saying that. Like you're looking down on the scene. I think he was saying because... Not many artists do it anymore because it can be really tough to make it look interesting and pull off the angles and stuff. So that, that kind of stuck with me. I mean, I don't do it a lot, but when I do do it, I think of that. And how were you different from when you entered the school and graduated? Oh, when I got there, I was more idealistic about the artwork, thinking of myself as more an artist than a commercial artist. And comics are commercial art. So now I'm more, I guess, functional with it in that 
it's a job and I have a certain date to finish my job and that kind of thing. I mean, I still like it. I still have fun with it, but it's, I'm not one of those guys who, who's going to take like three weeks on a page because he has to make it look as fancy as possible when the deadline's going to go past, you know? Yeah, it does give you a stopping point when you have that deadline. You have to say at a certain point, finished, I have to move on. Yeah, that, yeah, I think that was a, a thing I learned at school as well. When, like, you're never going to get the perfect page. You just get it done and then move on to the next one and see if you can do that one better. Do you look back on your work and say, oh, I wish I'd done this differently? I don't look back on my work. <laughs> <laughs> I never look at my work. Uh, I won't look at Crude when it comes out. I won't look at anything. I never look at it. I can't look at my work when it comes out because it's just, I just see every little shitty mistake I did and uh, it drives me insane. You're not going to look at Crude, but let's talk about Crude. Readers are going to see an assassin trying and failing to maintain a family life. Petrovich, who has kept his life as an assassin hidden from his family, and although he manages to keep them safe, he was unable to build a relationship with his son, which is a real tragedy, and it gets worse. Uh, you've done an incredible job setting up the story in the first issue. I read that. And there's a lot of shuttling back and forth from the past to the present to set up the first story in the first issue. So, Steve, why did you decide to use a nonlinear storytelling technique for the first issue? Because I think when you're in crisis and, you, and, and you're struck by a trauma like Piotr is struck with, that's how your mind works. You don't think linearly and you don't think rationally. And as you can see, like, especially when you're angry, like you know, none of us are, are rational when we're angry. So the issue itself jumps around in a lot of ways because that is where Piotr's head is at. That's where he's, I mean, almost always at. He's almost always in fight or flight because he's just shell-shocked and ashamed of this life he used to have. And then when his own hiding that and making himself into what he thought was a good role model actually turns out to be the problem, it's doubly worse. So I think people Piotr's age, and also I just look at it, I base it off a lot of people from that generation, because Piotr is essentially like a Russian baby boomer, you know? And many people in my own family and from my own neighborhood, uh, their recollections, when you talk to them and I, I see what they're interested in, it's very much like that. There's a lot of the good old days and there's a lot of middle-aged regrets and things, and it's on their mind almost constantly. So this, to me, is Piotr. He loves his son, he loves his wife, but it's also a reminder of the fact that he's older, and it's a reminder of the person they think he is. That agitation is toxic in his life. So hopefully the issue sort of picks those things up as to where his mindset is. He is sort of in this malaise of belated midlife crisis that just gets worse and worse. And when he finally finds focus again, when the story becomes mostly linear, is, of course, you know, with Kirill's death and the fact that you know, at least finally gets to go back to what he's good at. But of course, what he's good at and where he's comfortable and where he knows who he is, is horrifying. Gary, why don't you share how you adjusted the illustrations throughout the story and also working with Lee with the colors to indicate to the reader that it's another time or place that's being recalled? Yeah, I think we did um, with the flashback or early early scenes of the family, it was more, I tried to leave it a bit more open and then slowly creep in the, the heavy black in the background, but leaving halos around people and stuff. And I worked with Lee on Catwoman. I already knew that he'd know what to do, you know, because uh, he's a good colorist now, like a whole lot. Um, and then the further we get in the book, uh, I was in the script that Steve wrote, like the sound effects that I do on the, on the art are in English in like the first issue and a half and then they transition to Russian and then by the end of it they transition back to English and that's to I figured it was to show 
how he's kind of lost. Like, so when it goes to Russian, from our point of view, we don't really know what the sound effects are. So we don't really know what it is, but we kind of know what it is. Like, he's trying to feel everything out. And then it goes back to English towards the end when he's in his element again and ripping people's throats out. Well, Steve, you must have had Gary top of mind for such a dark and violent story, given his work on titles like Black Road. When did you first discuss this story idea with him? And did you find it fairly easy for the two of you to develop that synergy to produce the book? Gary and I have been wanting to do something for a long time. Because I'm also, through Frank Barberi, ended up meeting Gary and Chris Mooneyham. I, I, I like a lot of people getting punched in the face, uh, which obviously, like, skulls get caved in on Black Road. And so it's always seemed like it would be a good fit. You know, honestly, the what happened is, uh, you know, Skybound approached me to doing a, a spiritual sequel to Virgil. Gary was one of the first people I brought up because we were looking for a way to work together. And as you said, for all the reasons you pointed out, this seems like a good fit. And also, like, I know what Gary can do. And I wanted a book that could be a, more of a collaboration. And, you know, a lot of this book I wrote, uh, quote unquote, Marvel style without panel inscriptions. I wanted to give uh, room to actually have it be co-creators and actually have it be collaboration and not be as lording over on the art side and controlling like I never wanted to be turning in 160 page Alan Moore scripts not that there's not a place for that you know not that I'm here to talk down upon the pillars of our industry but all I would say is it does not strike me as there being an inherent trust to the artist if you need 160 pages to describe the action of the book so that's not what I was looking for for this especially with creator owned uh, and I knew Gary would excel, and he certainly does as the series goes on. I gave more and more challenging things in the script, and they just keep getting knocked out of the park. People that are thinking about picking up the book, ordering it in advance, keep in mind a couple of things since we're talking about this. There's a lot of action, a lot of violence, but beneath all of that, there's a very important theme in the story. And basically, life is fleeting, that you need to get close to people and tell them how you feel now before it's too late. You don't know if you have tomorrow. Carpe diem, seize the day and say what you feel because like, oh, I'll do it later or you know, maybe there's still time. There's not always still time. You never know when your last day is going to be. We get caught up with daily distractions in life, all other kinds of things that pull us away from those relationships. And it's important to remember we only have now. Steve, do you try to work in deeper themes into all of your stories? Something that we can all relate to as human beings something that's an underlying theme in any book. I think that the goal is to be entertaining and have the books be about the thing is. Otherwise, you're just eating candy. I don't like candy. I like steak. The number one obligation is always to entertain and not to have something be a polemic. But at the same time, there should be a message and there should be a moral. It's almost impossible not to make a movie about something. Die Hard is about something. I think it's almost even if you don't uh, intend on it being there, it's there. In the case of Crude and Virgil and a bunch of other things I've done, even Midnighter, you know, we love action stories. We love action narrative and we love badass heroes, obviously. Like, this is why we're all here. Why not use those things to entertain and to blow up skulls better than anyone else can? Uh, but at the same time, yeah, get people to think about their lives as well. It happened in Mad Max, Fury Road. It happens all the time. And comics can do that, too. So... Hopefully you're entertained and you're moved and you're shocked and you're, you know, indignant and you're passionate when you read the book. And then afterwards, yeah, you think maybe, as you said, maybe there are some things, maybe things didn't have to go this way for these characters. And here's how. And, and that's what you take away. But it's got to be a mixture. A top line message book feels like you're talking down to someone. And that's not what you want either. What you want, again, is to just tell an amazing, exciting story. Uh, and then the rest just comes naturally. You know, you, I don't think it's possible 
you can't make a book that isn't about something uh, and doesn't have some sort of overarching message because even the absence of that, that is a message. Gary, tying into that, uh, your art is very character focused. While there's plenty of action and violence always in these kinds of stories, the characters always come first. And I'm thinking about books like, you know, The Massive, A Black Road. They haven't done a whole lot of superhero work. I mean, Iron Patriot, yes, but you tend to do more grounded people rather than superheroes, less uh, splash pages and fight pages. Is that your preference to do that kind of work? Are you more comfortable doing that? Do you find you can express more that way? I like drawing, drawing conversations. I, I find really fun uh, to play up the drama and stuff but you know i really want to do superheroes i just never get offered them <laughs> so i think maybe it's because of that my track record hasn't been really superhero laden but yeah i enjoy uh, drawing drama and thriller aspects and stuff kind of noir style i guess i want to ask each of you is there besides this one a dream project, a passion project that you hope to someday get to that you just don't have time for right now in your schedule steve i'll start with you Man, I mean, I've been lucky to do most of them. I did Midnighter. I did Batman in the Shadow. The Shadow is my favorite character. I'd like to do The Shadow with Gary, actually. Yeah, that'd be good. You know, yes, I've always wanted to do a Martian Manhunter book. I've always wanted to work on Phantom. And I've got a bunch of other weird things I'd like to do that no one else would know what the hell I'm talking about, you know? So, like, I'd like to adapt a feast unknown which is this like gonzo hypersexual violent version of tarzan and doc savage that was written by philip jose farmer uh like i've got a lot of projects like that well that i would love to do but you know i at least need to attain a level of notoriety where someone might trust me enough to buy that instead of just being like what the hell is this guy talking about gary how about you do you have a, a dream project or a character that you'd like to work on someday i'm a huge batman fan in the bat universe type stuff I like that and like Punisher, Hulk, Hellblazer would be, that was originally my dream book, Hellblazer, but then they moved it from Vertigo, so I'm not sure what it's like now. Like I, when I finally quote unquote broke into comics is when they canceled Hellblazer. <laughs> so that was uh, really disappointing because that was one of my uh, career goals back then. Well, I'm going to ask you the same question I asked Chris Mooneyham. Do you think you'll ever want to write and draw a book? Yeah, I have uh, like notebooks with stuff in it like sketches and outlines and stuff like that it's just something i play around with when i'm on like a plane to a convention or something i'll start creating that stuff but hopefully i get to do it within the next five years now the questions i have for you are just the fun questions i ask all my guests questions that are just fun to answer nothing really difficult i'll ask each of you and steve i'll start with you what do you like to do for rest and relaxation? Uh, when when do you assume I get that is the real question. <laughs> Ideally, when you can find that little bit of time, what would you choose to do to relax? I've been forcing myself to actually take time to read again, uh, which has been really nice. In 2017, I was writing one to two books a week every week for my exclusive. And now I've, I've given myself more time to sort of work on slightly fewer projects, but make them all better. Part of that is actually getting back in and reading more. Uh, so I've actually been reading a lot. I know that sounds very rudimentary, but when you get so wrapped up in pitching and scripting and plotting, you sometimes forget that you have to feed your creativity as well. So though that seems rudimentary, it's been very nice to get back to it. And Gary, how about you? I play guitar. That kind of, I like doing that because it's my higher function brain kind of gets disconnected. So I don't really think about anything. That's fun. I also do uh, martial arts as well. I feel I get the same kind of feeling out of that. This physicalness kind of shuts off my brain a little bit. Oh, very good. What style? It's a whole bunch of stuff. It's like uh, Muay Thai, uh, JKD, Kali, Salat. 
all that stuff. How long have you been doing that? A year and a half. Well, good. You got a nice mix there. Music and the martial arts. Excellent. Never bored. Now, Steve, you mentioned doing more reading. Hypothetically, if you were stuck on a deserted island, what would be the one book that you want to have with you? Either something you want to read or something you like to read repeatedly. That's easy. As comics go, it's Flex Mantello, and as novels go, it's The Master Margarita. To me, those are two of the best books ever written. So, uh, you know, if, if people haven't followed me in other interviews or anything, the answer to this question never changes. As a people, we can do better than those two books, but we're always trying to. I'm not familiar with the book. What is that about? Flex Mantello is a miniseries by Grant Morrison and Frank Quitely that came out. It was a spinoff of Doom Patrol in the late 90s. It stars the sort of absurdist superhero character that is all about conquering your teenage angst. And then Master Margarita is a satire that was published by Mikhail Bulgakov in the, during the Soviet period, and it was very anti-Soviet, so it was very auspicious that he would publish it. But it's about the devil coming to Moscow, turning into this sort of dark carnival. And at the same time, it's about this writer, the master, who is trying to finish his life's work. A uh, reverent biography of Pontius Pilate. It's supposed to vindicate Pontius Pilate. And it's really just about the act of uh, writing itself. The devil tries to shut down the master from writing this book, and eventually, like, all of his manuscripts are burnt. The, the theme of the book is the phrase, manuscripts can't burn, or manuscripts don't burn. And, and it's really, the entire book is just a statement over the fact that, like, literature is more powerful than the state, or is more powerful than censorship, because Bulgakov himself, almost all of his novels are published posthumously, because, you know, it wasn't safe back then. The whole book is sort of a, is sort of a, a eulogy on writing itself. And honestly, like, as much as I love Flex Mentello, if I only had one, it would probably be Master Margarita, because it's sort of about everything, in my opinion, which is pretty amazing. Gary, do you have a Desert Island book? Yeah, it's probably be I Am Legend. Uh, it's the book I've read the most. I guess it's a novella. Does that still count? Yeah. Yeah, it'd be that one. It'd be fitting as well since that guy's all alone as well. Steve, do you have a beverage of choice when you're resting and relaxing? I, I though, though I was a spirits buyer, I'm a huge fan of Spanish wine. Spanish wine and orange wines, which are white wines that are made like red wines. I don't have them all the time because, again, like that is not special, but unquestionably, like, Rioja, Georgian orange wine, uh, probably my two favorite things. Okay, how about you, Gary? Uh, I don't, actually. I'm not a picky drinker, surprisingly, because I'm Scottish. Actually, I, I like cocktails lately, Just strange. I never liked them until a few years ago. And the final question, if someone were to make an action figure of you, what would be your accessory, Steve? Uh, right now, Gary Brown. <laughs> <laughs> In a backpack? That's a good one. How about you, Gary? Your accessory as an action figure. Or five cats and two dogs. Is that too much? In a backpack? Sure. That's great. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you both so much. And Crude is coming out on April 11th. It looks great. It reads great. I think you'll really enjoy it a lot. So uh, give that one a try. Steve and Gary, thank you so much for being on Creator Talks. Yeah, thanks. It's been good. Thank you, man. Coming up next week, my guest will be Ignat's award-winning cartoonist, Box Brown. His book, Andre the Giant, Life and Legend, was on the New York Times graphic novel best-selling list. Box is a pro wrestling fan and also a fan of Andy Kaufman, who is also a fan of pro wrestling. Next week, Box and I share our love for comedian Andy Kaufman and Box's book, Is This Guy For Real? The Unbelievable Andy Kaufman. Thank you for joining me for Creator Talks this week. The show is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, 
and also on Amazon Echo and Dot devices. Just say, Alexa, play podcast Creator Talks to hear the latest episode. In addition, you can listen to the show and follow it through Podbean. Your feedback is greatly appreciated, so please rate and review on iTunes if you like the show or an episode that you heard. Your ratings and reviews go a long way to helping the show, and I can't thank you enough for taking a bit of time to do that. For your convenience, in the show notes of each podcast, I have a link to my iTunes page where you can rate and review the show and see the entire list of shows available. If you haven't heard them all, take a look through. There are living legends and -and up-and-coming comic creators. Tell family and friends who like comics and comic book creators about the show. And to subscribe. The content is free. Just as valued are your comments and feedback. You can reach me through Facebook and Twitter at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. You can also reach out to me by email. You can find that at my website, creatortalks.com. At the website, you will also find blog posts, reviews of books that I have read that you might want to read too, my catalog of podcasts, and videos and other written articles on the website, creatortalks.com. A hearty thank you to all my guests. It is an honor and a privilege for you to make time to be on the show and talk to me about your work. It is your knowledge and insight into the creative process that makes the show so unique. My thanks also goes out to my family who makes this show possible, especially my executive co-producer, Mrs. Calloway. I'll be back each and every Thursday with a new interview. For Creator Talks, I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time.